Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Great to be with you for another week. Today, our topic is how God's absence is a form of his presence. How God's absence is a form of his presence. Last week, uh, in this podcast, we talked about how God's equally present in failure as well as success. That is in setbacks, disappointments, dead ends, losses. And so often we want to keep our situation we want to change our situation and get back to quote normal and yet god's very much out to change us and our understanding of him and the way he works his ways etc and so often our situation may look like a disaster but it's actually a great blessing and an opportunity to get to know god and ourselves on a very uh, deep level and uh, so we talked about shifting our following of jesus our christianity from mega the big to the mustard seed, as Jesus talked about the nature of his kingdom and how God's found in such unexpected places that, uh, again, places we don't expect. So today I want to come at this theme from another angle, and that is how God's absence is a form of his presence. Um, now, let me just summarize uh, everything I'm going to say in a sentence or two, which is this, that the seeming absence of God on the spiritual journey is actually very often uh, if not always, a powerful manifestation of his kingdom. And his his presence is very real in those in those moments, but often in a very hidden way. Now, in a lot of my work, I'm talking with pastors and leaders uh, from places as diverse as Europe and Africa, Latin America, Asia, Australia, North America. And I, I hear a common theme, especially in these days, uh, in the midst of COVID, and that is the disorientation is great. Uh, the shifts happening in our world are disorienting uh, in our churches, in our families, in our workplace, and so much of what we've held on to is gone. And there's a sense uh, behind the struggles and the confusion and the angst, uh, you know, where is God? And God seems absent. And but he isn't. His absence actually is a form of his presence. And if we don't understand this and get this, we end up trying to uh, conjure up something or make something up so things will survive or at least feel good. And we end up making bad decisions, uh, wanting something extraordinary, kind of manufacturing something that feels like resurrection power. Uh, I know it well. Uh, I can remember in my early days uh, pastoring uh, when... I, I found myself experiencing God's absence, uh, and I wanted to get around anointings and revivals and folks who I could kind of like, uh, you know, get the spirit from, or at least a, an unction of the spirit from, so I wouldn't feel so abandoned uh, by God. And I, I sometimes would run away to run around to conferences or revivals, and I believe in conferences and I believe in revivals, actually, absolutely. Uh, but now looking back. Uh, my lack of understanding of how God's absence is a form of his presence, uh, I could actually see a, a couple of times uh, I, I may have been running from God in my desire to ease the bad feelings that I was experiencing with God. Uh, I didn't like the bad feelings of the ordinariness of leading uh, and pastoring uh, a church community where things are just so common and regular and filled with problems and difficulties, everything so slow. And um, I, I wanted I wanted visions and dreams and heavenly experiences. I wanted to feel it. I wanted all our people to feel it. 
uh, and have extraordinary encounters with God all the time. And that's why I realize now that always, quote, giving people extraordinary worship experiences or always attend sermon that was like an oracle from God to wow people, it actually can hold people back and make them addicts to a way of following Jesus that's not, not just as not sustainable, it's not biblical. And uh, that's why when things go wrong uh, and our humanity and the brokenness of our humanity is so apparent, uh, that can be a very good thing. Uh, we don't want to be feeding immaturity and narcissism, et cetera, and uh, that people think that, oh, God's purpose in life is that I might feel good. And what happens in the process is we miss God in times of failure. Uh, we miss God when it feels like he's absent and we're going nowhere spiritually and we're bearing apparently so little fruit uh, where it seems like God's taking his hands off the wheel uh, and uh, we end up then doing something just, again, immature of responding. And so it's like being attached to spiritual junk food. Uh, that is only our feelings for God. It's like having living on cake or dessert or ice cream. Uh, but we want peop we, we want to be living on substantial food uh, that flows from the mouth of God. Uh, and we want to feed that to those around us as well. And so uh, as we launch into this topic, how God's absence is a form of his presence, uh, let me just say this as again, as an introduction that God's presence is so present that nothing can take him from us. Uh, as Paul said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or demons or the present or future nor any powers nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, God's closer to you than your breathing regardless of how you're feeling, and God is closer to you than you are to yourself. And his absence is a form of his presence. So let me unpack this a bit, uh, even just biblically. Now I want you to think with me for a moment of Jesus on the cross and remembering that he, the cross, we may not die on the cross for the sins of the world, of course, Jesus that once and for all, but the cross is the pattern of our lives. Uh, and Paul said that repeatedly, that everything that happened to Jesus will in some way happen to us, a student's not above his teacher, nor a servant above their master. And so when Jesus is hanging on the cross, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't get a voice from heaven. The Father doesn't say, you are my son whom I love. Uh, there's an apparent absence. And Jesus cries out, hanging on that cross, naked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they, he asked the question, why? And he, he, his feeling of it, being forsaken. Now, again, he's bearing the sins of humanity. At that moment, he's experiencing being cursed for our sake, uh, that we might live. But it's his experience of God's absence, which I want, to, I want you to grab onto here. He doesn't say God is great. He doesn't, say, he doesn't quote Psalm 23. I always am so struck by that. He could have, he's quoting Psalm 22 one. He doesn't quote Psalm 23 one. Uh, which is the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He feels, he felt abandoned. And it says in scripture that darkness covered the whole land from 12 to 3 p.m. And Jesus asks a question. My God, my God, why? His lifeline of oneness 
with the father feels cut. His entire life has been being one with the father. Uh, and God at that moment feels absent. Why did you abandon me? And the you is the emphasis in the original language. Now, again, what's so amazing if you ponder this more and more that this worst moment of human history is the greatest in terms of God working the salvation of the human race. And the principle is our worst moments are often our best. Uh, think with me for a moment of Abraham, who was tested, it says in Genesis 22, and he was commanded to sacrifice his only son Isaac as a burnt offering. If you read Leviticus 1, to be a burnt offering is to be cut into pieces. And so he was commanded to cut his only son into pieces. Uh, and he goes on a three-day journey, a very lonely journey. There's no record of any conversation he's having. Uh you know, for most of that three days, and he builds an altar, arranges the wood, he ties up Isaac, and he takes a knife to cut the throat of his son. Uh, I can't imagine he's not experiencing uh, God's absence, uh, but he's, he seems quite certain it's a form of his presence. Uh, what a painful three-day journey that must have been. <clears throat> I think of Hannah in chapter one of Samuel, First Samuel, weeping at the altar. Think of Mary, the mother of Jesus. She surely must have had experiences of God's absence as a form of his presence as well, because, I mean, imagine she's a young teenage girl, disgraced, shamed, pregnant, out of wedlock in a culture, which should be stoned for that. I mean, I cannot imagine what she must have experienced going to the synagogue um, from her fellow villagers. I think of Moses, 40 years in the wilderness <clears throat> in Midian, a failure you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old until God calls him, just the sense of God's absence uh, in his life. Um, again, we don't know. I just, I can only imagine. Uh, he, know, he knew it well. Then, of course, there's someone like Jeremiah. We do know well how he felt because he writes about it. And he surely uh, experienced God's absence. And uh, I think of that one, just his explanation in Jeremiah when he's let down into a cistern, a dark, a deep, dark well, and he's left to die, rejected. His whole account in Lamentations of uh, the exile and the, the wiping out of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, just, it was like God was absent and the Babylonian gods had won. But and again, and finally, even, even Job, for 35 chapters, if he loses everything, right? He loses his health, his family, his position, his wealth, everything. And he curses the day he was born. And uh, he cries about God's absence. He, absence. He's saying these wild prayers. But I, 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 we have accounts in scripture of them people experiencing God's absence as a form of his presence. <clears throat> and uh, again, I think of even just Paul, where uh, he writes about his own apostleship and and uh, we're in 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, he talks about, uh, he's defending his apostleship. And he goes, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. So I mean, five times experiencing those 39 lashes, if you read about that, what that must have felt like, uh, and the brutality of that. Uh, boy, oh boy, talk about experiencing God's absence. You know, he says it three, 
Uh, three times I was uh, beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was ship shipwrecked. And he goes on and on and being in danger from bandits, fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city. I mean, it just goes on and on. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I, I've been cold and naked. I'm thinking, you know, I can think of all the Bible verses he should have been quoting to himself that he himself wrote. Uh, but he's clearly experiencing apparently an absence of God as a form of his presence. Again, we're talking here about a deep beneath the surface spirituality uh, and bringing this to our own lives and then to our ministries, our churches, those we, we lead. And uh, uh, let me just invite you as a little sidebar here to, uh, we have an ebook uh, called Church Culture Revolution, uh, a six-part vision uh, that deeply changes lives. And I want to invite you to pick up that ebook because one of the parts of that vision of a church culture revolution is a beneath the surface, a deep beneath the surface spirituality, a deep beneath the surface discipleship. And we're talking here today about one ingredient critical to developing mature disciples and leaders. So check that out at emotionallyhealthy.org slash church culture. That's emotionallyhealthy.org slash church culture. It's a free ebook. It's a 15, 20-minute read, but well worth your time. In the Emotionally Healthy uh, Spirituality course, part one of uh, EHD, uh, one of the sessions is, call, is called Journey Through the Wall, and we introduce uh, churches and people to this notion of walls. And um, it's, it's a very critical session in the, in the course, uh, and and I took it from a I, I use an image uh, that was developed by a fuller theological professor uh, named Robert Gulick and a spiritual director named Janet Hagberg and I and I did a little adaptation to it of their work about the journey of the Christian life in which they really brought out quite well visually that that uh, one theme of the Christian life of discipleship of the journey of following Jesus we hit walls along the way not just once but multiple times. And uh, it's a new territory. It's very unknown. It's difficult. But without the wall, you can't grow into mature people. Uh, and uh, so I, I describe walls as crises that turn our worlds upside down. They can be internal or external crises. Uh, things like, and I'm going to read you a little quote here, but divorce or failed marriage, betrayal, a job loss, the death of a close friend or family member, a, a cancer diagnosis, a disillusioning church experience, a deep depression, a shattered dream, a wayward child, an, inabil an inability to get pregnant, a car accident, a deep desire to marry that remains unfulfilled, a career ends before it begins, a, a dryness or loss in our relationship with God. We question ourselves. We question God. We question the church. We discover for the first time that our faith, at least as we know it, does not appear to work. We have more questions than answers as the very foundation of our faith feels like it's on the line. We don't know where God is, what he's doing, where he's going, how he's getting us there, or when this will be over. And the reason this is so important because as, uh, as the authors note that uh, only 85, probably 85% of Christians never get through the wall. They're, they're stuck because they don't get it that God is absent, is a form of his presence, and he acts in ways very far than we often expect. And we end up following our feelings, not necessarily Jesus. And this critical juncture in the spiritual journey is 
uh, indispensable to develop mature disciples. See, God's goal for you and God's goal for me is that you'd actually rest and I would rest and trust in the in the love of God, in the flood of the love of God, and that we live in a place of union with him, that our will has been so transformed into God's will that that they're almost like one will. We want God's will and and the image and likeness of God that we were created in has actually now being being restored in us and that his presence now is like a burning bush inside of us, kind of taking us over and melting away our false self. And we become the men and women he, we originally, he originally intended. But God loves us so much that he's going to strip us of all those things that keep us away from him. Things that even aren't bad in themselves, but they keep us from God. And so at the wall, uh, our whole identity has changed. And, and, and we actually let go of things that we're holding on to for identity. Things that hold us back from intimacy with God. And that can be anything from... The way we're, you know, religion, intellect, control, addictions, our gifts and talents, our need for applause from other people, uh, dreams we might have. And in that session, I introduced people to the Dark Night of the Soul by John of the Cross, written 500 years ago. It's such an important work. I've read it, I don't know how many times. And I read it every few years because it's such an amazing work. It has stood this test of time. And its basic argument is that Everyone goes through dark nights of the soul or valleys or walls, and it's the ordinary way that we grow in Christ. It's the way that God rewires us. He, he, he redoes our affections, our DNA, and he prepares us for a, he prepares us to have a higher degree of communion with him, of love with him, uh, that we can actually grow up to mature men and women. He purges our taste buds so that we actually taste the love of God. We feel the love of God. We, we've lost taste for the things of the world in an unhealthy way, at least. And we're stripped uh, and become the new men and women he's called us to be. And uh, it's not simply God restraining our self-will, but he's purging us. He's cleansing us of things that are deeply rooted. And what's interesting, he, John of the Cross goes into a big discourse of the seven deadly sins, uh, which go back to Evagrius, eight deadly sins. Uh, who's actually the, it's been all through church history talking about the seven deadly sins, but it's interesting looking at uh, his, uh, John of the Cross's seven deadly sins, because I read this list again and I think, oh boy, no wonder what, how critical it is that we go through dark nights, that we have experiences that of, of God's absence as a form of his presence, because there is no other way for God to pull these things out of us like weeds deep in a garden. And here they are. I'll mention them very briefly here in this podcast. First, he says his pride, which is simply our thirst for fame uh, as part of his, our, our thirst for fame. And uh, I love our Mother Teresa's spiritual director told her during her dark night of the soul that lasted so many years that he, he told her that God was purifying her and keeping her humble against applause and praise from people. But John of the Cross refers to this deadly sin of pride, the first one as uh, that thing in us that that condemns other people, that's impatient with other people when they mess up, that uh, especially if they're making little progress spiritually, we get frustrated. He goes, that's got to get pulled out of us. The second is greed, not just love for money, but a discontentment with the spirituality that God's given us, where we are right now in a journey. We end up comparing ourselves to others. Third deadly sin he calls luxury, which basically is, um, you know, it's we want we, we love the spiritual blessings of the Christian life more than we actually love God himself. And so part of the dark night is God takes away the, quote, the blessings and the feelings of the blessings. So we actually long for him alone. 
and uh, uh, then the fourth is is wrath, and which he refers to as the e- we're easily irritated. We we lack a sweetness to us or a gentleness, and we d- we don't like waiting on God, uh, and we make these great resolutions of what we're going to do for Jesus, but we actually don't follow through. Then he goes to the spiritual gluttony, where we don't want the cross, but spiritual pleasure is kind of a childishness. Six deadly sin is spiritual envy. We're unhappy when other people are doing well spiritually. And then finally, it's sloth. We run from that which is hard. We don't like the cross. And God's removing everything that we lean on. Uh, And so again, basic theme is what we think is best for us actually is really the worst. And we really think is the worst ends up becoming actually the best. John of the Cross talked about uh, a second level of a dark night that few people go on, and he described it almost as a violent or the dark night of loving fire, where God just chooses or allows certain people to go through even a greater cleansing. Perhaps that's some of you. uh, To it's an entrusting. It's actually a, a trusting with such suffering. And I've known a few people like that over the years. Um, but to bring them to a place of such maturity. And we end up in places we never dreamed of with people we've never imagined. And again, uh, if that's you, uh, there's a there's a love in that. He called it loving fire. But this is God's path for, for, for us to become the extraordinary human beings that he intended. And that's why being going through God's absence or these kinds of moments are compliments and privileges uh, that your life is actually a gift. So what do I do in those moments? I persevere in patience. I be quiet. I let God empty me. I persevere faithfully. I let God invade me, empty me, uh, and I stay with him, even though everything in me wants to run. You know, I just sat down even in prep for this podcast, and I just were thinking about my five to six major walls that I experienced. And I just was thinking a bit more deeply about two of them, that each of which lasted at least two years, where everything in me wanted to quit. Um, I felt nothing. And uh, yet, as I look back, they were the times of the most significant transformation moments in my life. In terms of when I look back about God's transforming work in my life, it was happening then, not in these moments that I was feeling his presence in such a tremendous thing. Listen, I I, I wish it was different, but it is. Um, this is so important for us. And so uh, we get really free from following feelings, and but and then we follow Jesus. I, I realize how important it is that every person that we're influencing, discipling, we're building churches, on ministries that we're actually teaching people that we follow Jesus and not simply our good feelings about Jesus. You see, real faith is staying with God when, even when you don't feel him. It's calling on God when your experience suggests that God's not even there. It's one of the most important lessons of discipleship. So I love feelings of God's presence, but I don't cling to them because they're not God. And uh, so I surrender to him and I recognize that God's in these ordinary, insignificant, difficult situations as well that happen in my life. And he's very much present in unexpected people and situations. And that I can trust him and you can trust him without trying to figure everything out uh, or resolve everything around us. We we join Jesus in that emptying ourselves, Philippians 2, um, 
uh, we pour we pour ourselves out. We 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 like Mary. We we empty ourselves that Jesus might fill us, and uh, it's God doing a work in us. You know, a, another tremendous uh, passage, and I want to close with this, comes out of um, the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman, uh, she's sometimes called. And if you know the story, it's, it's an amazing story because she is met with silence from Jesus. If you remember the story, she cries out to Jesus to heal her daughter who is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. And the text says, Jesus did not answer. Silence. And again, apparent rejection. And then the leadership, the 12 disciples, they, they're insulting and they say, send her away. There's a real apparent failure in her prayers. I mean, Jesus finally does speak. She's crying out and says to her, I was, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And, um, you know, the bread belongs to Israel. Uh, and, and then this, you know, she has its tremendous response to Jesus, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the tables. And Jesus responds, woman, you have great faith. It's just just an amazing story because she experiences uh, God's absence, in a sense, his silence. Um, And Jesus is very much active and working in her life. And we learned there's, there's just so much in that text. But remember, faith is refusing to believe Jesus can be bad, even when it seems like he is, or things are bad. And it's trusting Jesus is good, even when you're not so sure he's good. Uh, it's, and my, my, one of my favorite definitions of faith is faith is holding on to Jesus for dear life, like a drowning person to a life raft, believing Jesus is good, even when his words do not seem to be. Boy, that Syrophoenician woman sure did that uh, in the midst of what looked like Jesus' silence or absence to her pain in her situation. Now, listen, the truth of this podcast will free you as it's freed me. I've loved uh, pondering it, uh, uh, how God's absence is a form of his presence because it, I, I'm now free from even what I'm I mean, following my feelings. I, and if you can get free, you can free everybody around you as well. God's absence really is a form of his presence. It is a gift. It is the pathway to becoming a mature mother and father of the faith. I'm not sure there's any other way. So thank you. Let me invite you as we close here to uh, pick up that ebook, Church Culture Revolution at emotionallyhealthy.org slash church culture, because one part of that six-part vision Uh, of a church or a ministry that deeply changes lives is a deep beneath the surface spirituality or discipleship. And um, this sure is part of it. So thank you, everybody. It's been a great joy to be with you. I pray that uh, the Lord might bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you. And may he fill you uh, to overflowing with his love and his wisdom and his revelation. I may fill you with love for him, uh, and I bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.